This is episode 15 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast, and on today's show, we're talking all about prevention and treatment for post-traumatic stress. Now, I've had this show in the can for a while, but we just recently lost another officer to the stress of the job. Our thoughts and prayers go out to the officer, his friends and family, to the Ontario Provincial Police Officers and their organization. So before we kick this off, what I want to tell you, if you're listening to this podcast, is that if you're in crisis, if you feel like there's nowhere else to turn, go to thebreakdown.ca forward slash help. There are phone numbers and links available to you. Find somebody to speak with. Know that it's not weak to speak. Don't give up on the fight. Stay in it. Persevere. Keep kicking ass. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, welcome back to Tactical Breakdown. I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. My guest on the show today is Dr. Robert Perkins. Robert is a clinical psychophysiologist, a retired law enforcement sergeant, and a military veteran. He is currently the executive director of the Ontario Critical Incident Stress Foundation and acts as the chief of chaplains for the California Practical Chaplain Association. Our talk today is going to be all about the importance of PTSD prevention using critical incident stress debriefs. Now, what does that mean? How does that help you? How is it going to help you and your colleagues? Well, you're going to have to listen to the show to find out. For more information and resources, you can check out thebreakdown.ca forward slash 015. Now, let's jump right into the show. Okay, well, today we have Dr. Robert Perkins on the line. Uh, Super excited and honored that you took the time today, sir, to jump on the call with us. Let's talk about what is causing the high level of police suicides in North America right now. Well, the the primary and the number one cause of death for a police officer in uh, North America is uh, police suicide. It is double um, all of the other associated deaths, um, including traffic accidents, uh, assaults and murders from suspects. Um, And the the reason uh, that that is happening is because uh, we have not come up with a way to, number one, uh, come up with preventative measures in training and um, having uh, in place the resources necessary to help people that are being exposed to a tremendous amount of trauma on how to sort of deal with that. And then to those who have uh, what we've got, if we, we have very ineffective or none at all uh, treatments that we believe will work or, or that doesn't work in treating that. So those two issues right there is what points to the large amount of, of law enforcement suicides because there doesn't seem to be any solutions for them. And the accumulated trauma just becomes too intense, both uh, emotionally, mentally, and physiologically for that person to go on. It's stunning to me uh, when you and I first talked offline, the amount of deaths. I believe when we talked last month, uh, the number of officer-involved suicide was in the 90s. Do you, do you know the numbers right now? Well, I can, I can tell you, um, as of July the 5th, uh, law, confirmed law enforcement suicides were at 102 
Uh, firefighter paramedic suicides was at 56 and uh, active military and veteran suicides uh, for the year so far was at uh, 3,896. Uh, I'm sorry, I just had to take a second there. It's, it's sad to me. I feel like a pit in my stomach almost hearing that number. It is, and it, and it goes up. And, and, you know, the thing is, is that we as a mental health community, we as a, a physical health community, we did not take uh, post-traumatic stress difficulty really serious until after Vietnam. And those are the, where you see the first set of staggering statistics. So in Vietnam, we have approximately 58,000 Americans that died in combat. Now, by 1986, um, after the war was over, we had 117,000 veterans who returned home that committed suicide as a result of post-traumatic stress disorder. And that, that number I know is, is up towards the 200,000s. So what people don't understand is that PTSD has claimed more lives from the Vietnam War than actually uh, there were combat deaths. And it was when these statistics started to become about is that they really started to look at this and say, hey, you know what, maybe this is a problem and maybe we have to identify it and address it and see what we can do about it. Where do we start? I know that's a, <laughs> I won't leave you with that question because I know that's an extremely difficult question, um, almost impossible to answer. But my, my thought goes back to what you had said earlier about the, the levels of um, police and law enforcement suicide deaths in North America. From my understanding, that is significantly higher than any other industrialized nation in the world. Is that right? I, it is high. Uh, f- France and uh, Italy and, and in other European countries, um, you will find they may not be par on, but you will find that they are similar when you take sort of the ratio of officer deaths, that it still uh, is the leading cause of that particular occupation's uh, um, number one cause of death. It doesn't really matter if it's in North America or if it's in France, because the problem is still the same. The problem is, is that we are taking human beings and we are training them and we are giving them skills to function on the street. And we are just making this assumption that they are Superman and Superwomen, and they're going to see all of these terrible things. And you know what? It's just going to bounce off them and they're going to go on. And so that is the perception of the public that that police officers and firemen and first responders and military, they're not human. It's like we've, we've, we've put them in this box of whatever their occupation is. And the fact of the matter is, is that they, they are human. They may have the ability to temporarily suppress uh, emotions and sort of things that allow them to deal with the situation while they're dealing with it, that perhaps a member of the general public hasn't been able to master. But there is going to be an effect of being exposed to that trauma on that person. Usually for a first responder, for a member of law enforcement, they're interacting with members of the community, usually during the worst or one of the worst days of that person's life whatever traumatic incident it is or whatever situation is happening, usually it's, it's not something good because they're not getting called there for no reason. I guess what people don't understand is it's not like isolated incidents where it's like, okay, I go to one call, the call's done. Okay. Brush that off, move on to the next. It's, it has a cumulative effect. Is that right? Um, I know that was something that we had spoken to earlier, but it's, it's something that almost builds up. And if it doesn't get, 
resolved in some way for that individual, kind of just, it grows into almost a mess that you can't deal with anymore. Maybe you can explain that. Absolutely. Sure. You know what? The best way to understand it is there's a cost um, of being exposed to trauma. So the way that I like to explain to people, it's like borrowing money from the bank. If I borrow a thousand dollars today and I pay it at the end of the week, I have this thousand dollar principal and then I have the interest from today until the end of the week. Now, if I pay it back in a month, if I pay it back in a year, I'm paying the same principal, but I'm paying a lot more interest. Trauma is the same way. There's a principal and then there's going to be interest. So if people are being exposed to trauma and they're either repressing it or they're not dealing with it at all and they're waiting days, weeks, months, years, or sometimes a whole career, when it comes time to pay and you look at someone that's you know, been exposed to cumulative trauma over, a, say, a 20-year law enforcement, that is a lot of interest to pay. And so you're going to be sort of overwhelmed in dealing with all of those traumatic events all at, all at one time. What do the numbers look like for incidents where officers are taking their lives do you find, because the way I, I hear you explaining it, and I could be completely off here, but it, it, it sounds like it, it kind of culminates near the end of their careers or not always, but you know, for a large part near the end of their careers. And I've heard of things where it's when that officer retires, the risk level goes up because they don't have that, that camaraderie, that brotherhood anymore, the, you know, the day-to-day ins and outs of what they've been doing to cope. Um, and now they kind of are left alone with their thoughts. And that's when. Correct. Yeah, that, that is that that is people who retire that have been exposed to cumulative trauma that say haven't processed it. They are at a high risk, but I wouldn't suggest that uh, retiring personnel um, is the highest sort of level of suicide. Um, it's across the board. I mean, it's officers with, you know, with two years service, five years service, 10 years service. It's just, you know, some of the older people, they've been doing it for so long, they get really good at repressing those memories. But what happens is that type of person generally can go their whole year and never have an effect of trauma. And usually they're the type of person that are very involved. They're very busy. They're always working. You know, they're involved in coaching soccer or baseball. They've led a really busy life and they haven't had a whole lot of real downtime or quiet time to sort of process their thoughts. Now, when that person retires, all of a sudden there's all this quiet time. So they, they figure they're going to be happy on the golf course or out in a boat fishing. And then while they're sitting there and during all of this sort of quiet time, now the movie projector of their entire career starts to sort of play. And they've never really had the time to sort of process and remember all of those traumatic events. And because of that, that's what puts those people in sort of a more of a, a risk category um, versus if someone had had episodes or symptoms of anxiety or post-traumatic stress difficulty during their career. I have a thought and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want this to be a controversial topic or, you know, my, my goal is to have our listeners jump down my throat when I say this, but do you think that as a society, um, as a whole, with the generational gap between generation X, generation Y, and now millennials, the talk is, is that society as a whole is getting softer. And do you think that that mindset and the way that people are raised now 
is that going to cause more of a problem or less of a problem for new officers that are coming onto duty or will be coming into the line of duty within the next 10 to 20? Well, I think if you look at sort of the history of that, that suicide versus other line of duty deaths has been two to one, you know, for, for a few decades, um, you know, does that mean that the um, millennial type of sort of officer is more uh, likely to, to suffer from traumatic stress than someone that's not? Uh, they may recognize it quicker because if, you know, if you look back, you know, when I was involved in law enforcement and the generation before when I got involved in law enforcement, what we looked for in law enforcement officers is certainly different than what we look for now. I mean, back then, if you take sort of my father's generation, you had to be big. Where I came from in Canada, if you were big and you were Irish, you were an ideal police officer because Irish people knew how to fight <laughs> and there was a lot of brotherhood then. And then that sort of transformed into, okay, you don't have to be big, but you've got to bring to the, to the table uh, some sort of skills, like some sort of education. And now when you look at now really what we're looking for in police officers, it's a much more well-rounded person, um, educationally wise and, and what we teach people at the academy, you know, we're, it's not just that hard line, that enforcement, we're teaching community policing, we're talking about having a connection with the neighborhood. So I believe in that way, it's been a benefit. I do, however, feel that in sort of the society that we live in that is anti-enforcement, that is anti-sort of force, that it becomes sort of a dirty word to, to, to train and talk about that part of the police officer that has to be a soldier. Because, you know, when a, when a police officer's on the street and there's guns and there's knives and there's shots, he stops being a police officer, he starts being a soldier, and he's involved in urban combat. And we don't like to use those sort of terms when we're talking about our police officers because you know, we think of our police officers as the friendly person that's walking down the street and a child's lost and they walk up or we want them to be a counselor. We want them to be a social worker. And this has become now part of what the job is of a police officer. But make no mistake, there's still that sort of enforcement role and that sort of they're the court of last resort when something happens on the street where they're going to be the ones that's sort of facing the danger. So. It's great that we've, you know, become more warm and fuzzy in part of the role that a police officer makes, or sorry, that a police officer does on the street, but you can't take away or lessen the degree of sharpness of, of, of tactics and of mindset that that police officer has to have in their mind to not only do their job, but to also survive. And so now when we talk about accumulated stress and traumatic stress, we not only have to train our officers in the law and we not only have to train them tactically how to respond to situations, but we have to teach what I like to refer to as tactical wellness. And we need to spend as much time as we would at the police academy teaching them how to use their gun and their handcuffs and self-defense and how to fight. We need to spend that same amount of time to teach them how to process trauma because trauma is the number one cause of death of police officers. However, we're not seeing that right now. I want to get into the tactical wellness and the tools about the processing trauma and all those types of things. And we're going to jump right into that. But I want to, I want to kind of finish off this last little bit um, with what we were just talking about. You had mentioned community policing. I, I think you'll agree that over the last 10, 15, 20 years, the awareness of post-traumatic stress has 
gone from almost non-existent to now being at the forefront. And that would never have happened without, I don't want to say the more liberal or left-wing persons, because this isn't a political podcast, but it's kind of like a two-sided coin almost, it seems like, where, yes, they're bringing these things to, to the forefront, but at the same time, with all these community policing initiatives and all these things that are going on with society and how police are being scrutinized more than ever for every little thing that they do, does that... Absolutely, because now, on top of all of the normal stressors that a police officer has, you now put that sort of um, accountability and everybody and their brother has got a cell phone video that's happy to start and record any sort of interaction, enforcement action with a police officer. It does two things. Number one, it's dangerous because where an officer is trained to respond to certain situations um, to protect his life and the life of the general public, especially when their weapons or their aggressive behavior involved, when he's trained in a particular way that's going to be the safest, most effective way to neutralize that situation. When people start pulling out cell phones, you know, officers are pausing and they're thinking and they're like, oh, how is this going to look? Or, you know, and sometimes those seconds can make the difference in an officer's, uh, you know, being killed or being put in a very vulnerable state. And as well, now you've got that whole, so, you know, I, I can't imagine uh, what it would have been like for during my law enforcement career for these cell phone uh, videos to have been to have been present. I, I just I don't know how I would function under that. I had enough stress as it was. So that's a very good point, because now all of this sort of uh, and, and you and you and I know that the news and the general public, when we see a clip of a law enforcement officer, we never see the full story. We see whatever is the most newsworthy or whatever is going to have the most controversy that's going to get people to talk about it the most or watch it the most or, you know, uh, get the most hits on, on social media or YouTube. We don't see the full story and that in itself. So people say, you know, what's the most difficult jo- uh, part about being a police officer? What's the hardest part? It's not the hours. It's not the danger factor on the street. It's the fact that I may have but a couple of seconds to make a decision on the job that may jeopardize my life or the life of a member of the general public. And then I have to be put before this sort of court of both public opinion, of both uh, federal provincial court, and as well as a court of my peers and my senior command staff, and account to them why I made that decision that I did when I had all of a couple of seconds to make it. That's a very difficult position. That causes a lot of stress. Right now, when somebody comes in and says, I have PTSD or I think I have PTSD, the current resources that are available, um, not just for medical professionals, but for agencies, first responders that deal with these incidents, the resources that are out there right now for prevention and treatment of PTSD just aren't aren't cutting it. So I know you wanted to speak to that a little bit, so I'll let you uh, take the floor. Uh, for sure. And there are two distinctly different topics, so prevention and and sort of treatment. So let's look at prevention first. Um, I mean, we need to do um, a lot of pre-education, both at an academy level, when a person is getting their sort of uh, their basic training to go out and whether they're police officers, whether they're firefighters, or whether they're military people, about teaching them an understanding and an awareness and sort of warning signs about 
after you've been exposed to trauma and giving them some kind of resources that they can, they can practice or that they can call or they can use to deal with those things. Um, that really isn't being done. Um, from a, a law enforcement and emergency service perspective, uh, one of the best resources that an agency uh, can integrate into their uh, peer support program is something called critical incident stress debriefing. And critical incident stress debriefing is, you think about it as sort of first aid and CPR uh, for uh, emotional uh, response to trauma. Um, it's something that uh, one takes over a 16 hour certification course. It's not psychotherapy, it's not some miracle cure, but what it does, it's a protocol that uh, after a person has been exposed to trauma, between 24 and 72 hours after exposure to that trauma, this person that's been trained as a debriefer walks them through a process and asks them some questions that's designed to mitigate the effect of the trauma on that individual and get them to sort of a normal uh, functionality, as we call it, so that they're not paralyzed by the trauma. And in, in this debriefing, we're going to ask them to tell us what happened. So if the person has tried to repress that memory, by just asking in sort of a casual way, well, tell me the details of what happened, uh, we've all automatically prevented that from being hap from happening, from that repression going on. Um, then we ask them to identify sort of what was going through their mind. What were they thinking while all this was going on? Uh, we ask them how they were feeling. And then we start to sort of solicit um, symptoms that they may have experienced subsequent to this trauma. So whether it's physical symptoms or whether it's emotional symptoms or they're having nightmares or they can't sleep. And then once we've ascertained um, where this person is in that sort of trauma, we start to deploy an educational or teaching element where we begin to explain to these individuals how their body works and what the effects of adrenaline are uh, on the human body. Um, because these people, they think there's something wrong with them. They think that they're broken. And what we teach them is that, listen, your body is going through what we call a normal reaction to an abnormal set of circumstances. And when you're able to explain to someone um, that the reason that they're feeling is natural, you've taken away, okay, I'm not broken. Oh, other people are, are feeling the same effects that I am after being exposed to that trauma. Uh, you have begun a healing process that's going to happen a lot faster and you've put a very high percentage that now this person will not develop OSI or, or PTSD as a result of the exposure to this particular trauma. You and I had talked earlier about critical incident stress debriefs. What immediately jumped to the forefront of my mind just because you know of our military background is AARs or after action reviews. And it was kind of, I drew, I know it's not the same, but I, I drew a parallel to it where it was, well, if after some type of action, we come back and we do an AAR, it's just part of the process. It's, it's step 16, right? It's, it's at the very end, we always do it and we do it for a reason. It almost seems to me like this is something that needs to start being built into incident response. Whereas, you know, if an officer responds to an incident, you have your list of things that Da, 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 you hit all your steps, but the very last thing is, and whether it is the senior officer on, on the call or the staff sergeant or the FTO or whoever it is, they initiate one of these stress debriefs. Is that something? It's true. It, it, it is. You, you're on the right track. Um, so let me, so when this, this debriefing model 
this was created by someone by the name of Dr. Jeffrey Mitchell, um, who is a professor uh, at Maryland University, but who was a former volunteer firefighter, and he's a psychologist. And he, he came up with this model. And originally, um, and it happened in the early 70s, it took a long time. It was used, it's used in the military probably the longest. But then as it began to filter uh, to fire departments and police departments, there was this notion where they were getting people that were trained outside of their agency to conduct the debriefings. And so you would have psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, or uh, just professional facilitators, an outside agency that would be contracted to do these debriefings. That created its own set of problems in the fact that the maximum, uh, to get the maximum benefit from this, the debriefing has to take place between 24 and 72 hours after the incident. Well, you can imagine if you're dealing with several police officers or fire officers or fire um, personnel that are working shift work and that were deployed to this incident, to orchestrate getting them all in the same room, uh, that, that's going to be not an easy task. On top of that, you've got to orchestrate the schedule of the outside provider and get them there. Um, and it's very expensive. Well, guess what? You know, when you bring a bunch of police officers uh, for someone who I'll say is on the other side of the blue wall, they're not necessarily going to trust that person. So there's going to be some barriers that are up and the debriefing is not going to be as successful as it could be. What we found in the last decade is that debriefings are the most successful when the person doing the debriefing or what we call the facilitator is a part of the, uh, of the homogenous group, which means that they're, they're, they're part of frontline uh, police officers, maybe up to the rank of sergeant or a dispatcher or someone on the fire service. When it's done by their peers, it's found to be very, much more, much more effective because now what you find is, is not only are you mitigating uh, the effects of the psychological trauma, but you're also promoting group cohesion. So most people in those occupations, when they get exposed to trauma, they kind of draw away. And when you have a peer-driven uh, facilitator doing a CISD, what it's going to do is it's going to uh, promote the re-cohesion of the group to get them back together and deal with this as a whole. And there's a trust factor. People will be a lot, uh, they'll lower their sort of psychological, physiological, and emotional guard um, because they're with people that they work, they're with people that they know and trust. Are there training programs out there right now for officers or members of these inner circle communities, whether it be law enforcement or first responders, for them to go and take this type of training so that they can do it within their own agencies? Yeah, absolutely there is. And uh, one of the organizations that I work with is called the Ontario Critical Incident Stress Foundation. It was founded in the province of Ontario in Canada in 2004. Um, however, um, it is now we're in Jacksonville, we're in Minnesota, we're in Florida, we're in Colorado, we're in Washington, and, and actually our, our head office is now based out of California. And, you know, like I say, critical incident stress debriefing was birthed in the 70s, and there was a model that had been, been used with relatively no changes up until now. And uh, our organization, with the help of some um, long-term research, is we were able to access some technology. Uh, and when I say technology, I mean science of how the body works, um, to be able to integrate that into the teaching phase of the, of the debriefing that sort of the original model didn't have. And it's extremely successful, and that's why you have a, 
a organization called the Ontario Critical Incident Stress Foundation, whose demand um, has been so big in the United States is now our head office is actually in Anaheim, California. That's awesome. And we're going to make sure that every single bit of information that we can get out um, about OCISF and that organization and the programs, uh, it's all going to be on the, the show notes page on the website and in our resources pages for everybody to access. And I'm sure um, we'll say this again at the end of the podcast, but if there's anybody listening to this program that's in a position or within a position in their agency or organization, and you would like more information, we're going to make sure that you can contact Dr. Perkins. And uh, I'm sure he will have all the information that you need to get that training started for your agency. So we talked about the prevention a little bit. What is currently out there for treatment for post-traumatic stress? Well, there are some successful treatment models that have a success rate of uh, up to 98% of eliminating uh, physiological symptoms of PTSD. And there are a multitude of other treatments that uh, don't have that sort of high success rate, um, but is the bulk of what's being used to treat PTSD. I will tell you from an American perspective, um, post-traumatic stress disorder is big business in the United States. And when I say business, I mean it is a money-making opportunity. Um, the pharmaceutical community alone profits probably close to about $30 billion a year just on the medication uh, that's prescribed for people that are suffering from PTSD. And make no mistake, the number one uh, treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder is uh, the prescription of medication. And that medication is, is so, um, and it's not just, they're not just two pills. I mean, I, I've talked and, and treated soldiers that show me their daily dosage. I mean, is this bowls full of pills a day? And, you know, this particular pill helps them sleep, but it upsets their stomach. So they got to take this particular pill to help uh, their stomach sort of settle. But that particular pill has a side effect that it causes, you know, sexual dysfunction. So now they got to take that pill to make up for that. And that pill gives them headaches. So they got to, it, it just goes on and on. So make no mistake, um, PTSD treatment in the United States, big business for big pharma. And so when you have um, big pharma that controls a lot, they control, uh, you know, med schools, they control doctors, they control mental health. There is no incentive for mostly the medical community and the mental health community to cure PTSD. I wanted, I don't want to sound like a, a conspiracist, but it's like almost like cancer. If you think that with all of the millions and millions of dollars that have been raised for cancer research and the level and speed of technology that we have, if you believe that there is not an antidote or a cure for cancer out there, then you're, you're, you're dumb. Um, or I won't say that you're dumb, but you're acting in a manner that's inconsistent with being smart. That's the politically correct way to put it. This is business. And so you have to understand that um, even if someone has a cure for PTSD, it's not going to be welcomed in those communities because you're messing with a multi-billion dollar um, industry. Now, there are some um, things that are uh, more productive than others. Um, probably the worst treatment for PTSD is just going to be, you know, what we call traditional psychotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you know, this, this causes a person 
to have to revisit the trauma, revisit the symptoms. How productive um, of a state am I going to be in if every time I'm sitting with someone that's trying to help me, they want to take me back to sort of the most unproductive moment of my life when I was experienced in this trauma? I'm not a, I'm not a very big believer in that. There are things, uh, EDMR, you know, it, it, has, it has sort of limited... Uh, limited success, but better than some of the other ones. We have service dogs, service horses, uh, surf therapy, all of all of these sort of things. And the reason that they're not successful is that they are looking at trying to cure symptoms of PTSD and not the root cause of PTSD. So if you cure a particular symptom or you design a treatment for a particular symptom, and you've sort of got that symptom under control, but you haven't cured PTSD, well, guess what? Another symptom's gonna pop up. And so now we're, they're almost kind of like back at the drawing board. I've seen some of the most ridiculous uh, treatments um, that have been experimented, Canadian and American military, everything from electric shock treatment, methamphetamine, marijuana exposure, like we're grasping at straws because everything that they've tried to do since Vietnam has not had a very high measure of success. Do you think there's such a wide range of treatments and, and trials for PTSD treatment because of the amount of suicide deaths that they're, they're attributing to it? Is it it's kind of like one of those where it's like, we realize we need to do something and we have to at least try something now, or is it like, I'm, I'm trying to understand why, if there's so many options out there and so many of them are ineffective or ineffective, why, why are we continuing to do that? For, for um, I'm going to say it again, is that because you've got a multi-billion dollar industry that is going to control um, this, how fast information gets spread, how quickly treatments or processes may get approval uh, for both the uh, medical community and the mental health community. It's, it's business. And, and, that, and unfortunately, that's what it is. But because PTSD has become a buzzword, um, what you're finding is sort of uh, non-mental health, non-medical practitioners um, are they're they're trying everything, and so that's why you see a lot of things with uh, with service dogs and 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 some of these things are um, effective, but they're not necessarily addressing what having a service dog does to a person that could be done without that dog. So it, it's a good it's a good way, but until we address what the root cause of PTSD is and treat that as a whole and acknowledge what that is, then we're not going to see high levels of success um, in the curing or the elimination of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. But it's again, it's all about tactical wellness. It's all about controlling and managing uh, traumatic stress. Yeah. And I just want to clarify real quick too, just to make sure um, anybody listening to this is, I don't think that these are, these topics you're being brought up to say that the people right now that are conducting these uh, the treatments that are they're doing it maliciously or have any negative intentions with what they're doing because they're working with what they have with the best of their abilities to try to create a positive outcome it's just that there's so much control through pharmaceutical companies to to control the access of information that they don't maybe have the resources available to them to, to make those best decisions. Is that, is that, does that kind of summarize it? 
Um, I would agree with that, but then they would have to agree that they're going to submit and, and not take a bold step in saying, hey, guess what? This doesn't work, but I have an idea because they, they don't want to feel the pressure of that. They don't want to be uh, ridiculed uh, by their, their sort of peers. And again, it's, 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 it was it going to make money if it's not going to make money. Then you know you, you you tell me where the where the last time that you saw you know some sort of uh, a treatment plan for any illness um, that didn't involve some sort of uh, monetary gain for the person that came up with it, and that's unfortunately that is the business of medicine. It's not as prevalent in Canada um, as it is in the United States, but it's 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 still there, uh, just not to the same degree. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And just to take a complete left turn on this, uh, another totally different t- conversation is that, and you know, because you've been both in Canada and the US, but it's it's amazing up here, we don't have pharmaceutical commercials, or at least if we do, they're, they're so few and far between that you, they don't even register anymore. Um, or we get them on US channels, but it's completely different. And a lot of people in the US don't understand that we've basically outlawed them on our on our uh, TV sets because of those reasons. Right. So I don't know the background, right. behind it, but it's, it is really an interesting kind of side topic. The, the prevalence of the pharmaceutical companies on American television versus uh, pretty much everywhere else in the industrialized world. Correct. I mean, I, I'll, I'll just, I'll tell you the, the biggest difference and, and this is a little bit outside of what we're talking about, but um, you know, there's a, uh, an organization that's based out of Detroit um, that helps people that have diabetes to get insulin. And so this one vial of insulin um, in the United States, it costs $450. They put people on a bus, they cross into the Canadian border, uh, and they go to a pharmacy in Windsor, and that same bottle is $25. That that gives you an idea of the difference in sort of culture values and, and sort of how uh, me- medicine is a business in the United States versus how it is in Canada. We've talked about treatments that aren't very effective, and I want to talk about what you are kind of doing right now. Um, but before we get into that, I want to talk about psychophysiology and kind of preface our conversation with, uh, with maybe a, an explanation of what psychophysiology is. Um, I mean, you have your doctorate, and for me too, it's educational for me as well, so that I understand it a little bit better, so that everybody, when we move forward with the conversation, they'll, they'll kind of know what we're talking about. Sure. Well, by its simplest definition, um, psychophysiology is the study and the science of the relationship between the brain and the human body. So in Canada um, and, and in the United States, you know, there's what's sort of thought to be or classified as a Cartesian model of health. And the Cartesian model of health says the body, the body is the body. The brain is the brain. We've got doctors. We've got psychologists and psychiatrists that are going to deal with the brain issue. And then we've got general physicians that are going to deal with the body issue. And, and a very good example of that, where I come from in Ontario, you know, we've got a government-run healthcare system where we're not out of pocket for traditional medical services. But if I've got any uh, sort of mental health issues, that's not covered. And so that's been this, this sort of philosophy that's been for a long time. Well, a psychophysiological sort of model and what you find now in more, uh, I want to say, holistic uh, medicine models is that 
the brain and the body are not two distinct entities. The brain and the body are intricately connected, and there are things in the brain that affect the physical body, and there are physical body uh, things that affect the brain. So in a sort of a nutshell, that's really what psychophysiology is. It's the study, application, and education of how those sort of things work. Please forgive me if I if I say this incorrectly, but I know a lot of people listening to this right now just because of the industry that we're in, when they hear something like holistic medicine, they go, oh, great, this again, right? Yeah, when I say, when I say holistic, let me replace that with uh, not what the, the, the run of the standard run of the mill would be. You could call it alternative, uh, alternative medicine, uh, you know, but, but when I say holistic, it's, it's a holistic model. And when people hear the word um, holistic, again, it's like, uh, you know, they get this kind of like, you know, weird uh, picture in their minds of, of what that sort of means. The same, when, same with when you use the word sort of like psychic phenomena, you know, and, and, and that's, those, aren't, those are words that sort of Hollywood and, and people have created. Um, alternative um, non-traditional uh, medicine practices. And that could be a, include anything from chiropractic to nutritional to naturopathic. It's just sort of outside of what we think of as mainstream general physician medicine that's been sort of a, a, existing for a very, very long time. Yeah, I just wanted to, to clarify for everybody just because I know when I heard that the first time, I was like, oh. Okay. Well, and you have to understand, you have to understand where the word holistic came from. Holistic means whole, okay? So it's, it's, it means that you're going to incorporate the whole body, the body and the mind. But we've attached the word holistic to mean sort of something else. I would parallel it for our listeners here because we do a lot of talk about defensive tactics training and firearms training. And one of the experts in the world on that is Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. And obviously in his book on combat, talks about a lot about our physiological reactions to stress. Our reactions in these incidents was never really addressed or talked about until somebody started talking about, okay, well, this is your sympathetic nervous system. This is what happens. You have perceptual narrowing. You have, you know, vasoconstriction. You have all these different physiological effects kind of ties into this in that it's until you understand what you're talking about, it's kind of one of those unknowns. Exactly. And you never, you would never hear those words. Uh, unless you're in med school, you know. <laughs> we've 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 got the ground rules down. Let's let's right. talk about what you guys are doing right now in terms of treatments. Okay, so in essence, um, and just like when we do, when I explained in critical incident stress debriefing, when you're able to um, explain to a person. Um, how their body works in respect to that when a person is exposed to trauma and there is adrenaline that's released into the body and that adrenaline or nephrinephrine um, affects different parts of the body and this is, this is the reaction of, say, the digestive system uh, when you have uh, adrenaline dumped into it and you're able to teach this person, that frees them. So it's not, I'm not healing them. I'm not doing therapy. I'm educating them, say, listen, this is how your body works. Okay, so that's very simple. When it comes to post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, someone by the name of Dr. Sharon Rowley, uh, after about seven years of intense study, really came to the conclusion 
of what was causing post-traumatic stress disorder. And it, and it wasn't so much the exposure to the trauma, but what it was something that we were doing with our physical body uh, when we had these sort of measures of trauma. And it involved a few things. One of the things is, is that, you know, we would have this sort of traumatic image or memory and we'd kind of like tighten our muscles. We're trying to get control of ourselves. But in doing that, we were holding our breath for uh, small periods of time which was contributing to uh, lack of oxygen to uh, major organs of the body, to the brain, to our bloodstream. It was upsetting the homeostasis of the body. And if you look at that and you start to list all of the symptoms that we list as PTSD, and you uh, start to uh, sort of apply, well, when the brain doesn't get enough oxygen, what are the symptoms? Uh, when our blood doesn't get enough oxygen, what are the symptoms? And if we're holding our breath, and there's a CO2 buildup and it can't get out, what are the symptoms of CO2 poisoning? And you list all of these symptoms, and then you look at the diagnostic manual PTSD symptoms, and you go, hey, well, they're almost exactly the same. So, which makes us believe now that, you know, when you look at what is causing PTSD symptoms, these are physiological, it's something to do with our physical body. So, in this, uh, she created a, um, a modality of treatment, it's called CMT, Cognitive Meditation Technique. Now, if you talk to people about what sort of the most um, beneficial treatments, uh, Band-Aid treatments for PTSD is, a lot of people have gravitated to yoga. Um, people go, you know, I've got full-blown PTSD, but when I go to yoga, I don't have any of my symptoms. And after I leave yoga for about an hour or so, I don't have any of my symptoms. And so there's something that you do with your body in yoga um, that's a huge benefit. You're changing the way you breathe. Uh, you're changing the way that you're sort of using your muscles. And so what Dr. Rowley did was understood and, and researched what that was, um, explains it to a person tells them that if, if you're not getting the benefits of that, then you're obviously doing this. And then there's a manner where we teach a person on how that's going to be sort of a cognitive response so that they don't necessarily have to think about it. And so that um, treatment has been deployed. It's been uh, tested since about 2016. And since its uh, testing has a 98% success rate with people that have full-blown PTSD meeting the criteria, of the elimination of permanently of the physiological symptoms of PTSD. Is it, are we able to narrow it down to what is it, it? Does it have to be yoga? I mean, does it have to be that or can it be like a physical activity that allows your body to release these, this stress? Yes. It's what, it's what, what we, we would classify as a breathing based uh, activity or a breathing based practice. And you don't have to go to yoga to do it. Um, but there's a science. I mean, so many times you hear uh, people saying, well, just breathe, just breathe. But we don't tell the person why it is that they're breathing. And it's not just to catch their breath. There's a physiological explanation about when we're not getting um, what we properly need in levels of oxygen uh, to our body, that the body has a utilitarian effect to tell us, hey, Stop doing what you're doing and let's get the oxygen level back up. So a lot of these symptoms of PTSD is, are normal factors. The body is trying to tell us that we're doing something wrong, that if we were to continue to do it for a long period of time, it might uh, have an ability of, of sustaining life. So it means we could have a heart attack, we could have a stroke, we could have all of these things. And so the body's utilitarian function 
to get our attention and, and to tell us not to do this is to dump these sort of cocktails of drugs that are, you know, everything from adrenaline to uh, dopamine to epinephrine into our system. And we associate when the body does this uh, with things like uh, panic attacks, because when these uh, chemicals are dumped into the body, you know, it increases our heart rate, it increases our, our blood pressure, it can cause us to be nauseous or disorientated. And so we're, you know, we're trying to say that, well, it's the trauma um, that's doing this. Well, yes, the trauma has started how we're physically reacting. We've, it's something in our body that we've changed that we weren't doing before we were exposed to the trauma. So what Dr. Rowley does is she explains what that is, what it is that the person is doing, how to sort of overcome that, and then how to make that a cog. So it's something that you would sort of have to practice um, until some point where the brain says, hey, this has been practiced, it's being working all the time, now we're gonna make it an automatic function. And thus it becomes a cognitive process of the brain the resource right now so if somebody wanted to to look this up and dive into it i mean we're gonna we're gonna make sure we have it on the show notes page we'll have the links and everything up there for them but is there a website or documentation right now that people can look at to to kind of start getting a track on this kind of thing um sure uh, any inquiries they can go to the the college of certified psychophysiologists uh that could be found it's a very unique website it's uh, www.c cp.college um, and on there um, it explains sort of what the field of psychophysiology is um, the certification and, and teaching of how to master and teach and if you're a mental health practitioner or you're a peer support worker and you want to learn um, how to use this cognitive meditation technique um, you can you can sort of take that through um, that school and from a first responder point of view um, you know, the OCISF as well as uh, RestoredHeroes.com. Uh, these are nonprofits that uh, deal specifically with reaching out. And we give a lot of scholarships to police departments and, and peer support agencies uh, all, over the, all over North America in being able to give them the skills that they need to be able to make a difference um, in the lives of the people that are suffering uh, from traumatic stress. Yeah, those are fantastic organizations that are linked onto the show notes page for everybody to get a hold of. Um, of course, again, everybody that's Restored Heroes and the Ontario Critical Incident Stress Foundation and the College of Certified Psychophysiologists. So you're going to be able to access all of that right on the website, right on the show notes page um, if you want more information on that. Uh, but Dr. Perkins, one of the things that I want to also get from you this going out to, obviously, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are instructors, they're trainers, senior level officials or officers with agencies. What are some, what is the information that they can be passing along to the members of their agencies in terms of things that they can do to help either identify post-traumatic stress or to cope with post-traumatic stress? I think probably the biggest benefit, especially when it comes to newer officers, and, uh, you know, la a couple of weeks ago, we had the latest class of um, um, Los Angeles County Sheriff Department deputies graduate. And the sheriff got up and he, he gave them some advice. And that's find something that you like to do that has absolutely nothing to do with law enforcement <laughs> to help you stay sane in your career. And because law enforcement is so much fun, 
Um, and it's in a, it's an adrenaline induced occupation and we're constantly being sort of put to the test and being able to prove to ourselves that we're good at something. And then there's the sole social aspect of that. A lot of times, uh, police officers, all of their friends are police officers. They're, if they're firemen, all of their friends are firemen. So when they get together with their wives and whatnot, all of these police officers or firefighters, they just talk about police officers and firefighter stuff. And so, I mean, that was the case with me. It becomes a lifestyle. It's not just a job. So what the sheriff was saying is like, listen, find some balance. Don't be all succumbed um, by just this. Find something that has absolutely nothing to do with law enforcement. So that's probably one of the best pieces of advice. The other thing is, is to understand that, um, you know, when people feel funny or people think that they were affected by a traumatic incident, that's not a sign that they're broken. It's quite the opposite. It's the sign that they're a human being and point out um, that there is help for that. And help might just be in the case of just talking to someone that's in a peer support group or talking to their police chaplain or, or talking to someone from employee assistance, but letting people know that it's normal to be affected by terrible things and that these are the resources that are here for you to talk about um, is something that really has to be sort of uh, implemented in order to make a really good uh, dent in the, the type of suffering that we're seeing in our first responder communities. It's definitely something that needs to stay and remain at the forefront of everybody's minds with, with the amount of incidents of officers taking their own lives um, or attempts as well that it's it's something it one one officer taking their lives is, is one too many and the fact that we've had thousands along with our veteran community it's again it's a staggering number and i'm hoping that even if even if there's one person listening to this and the information and the knowledge goes to to somebody and it, and it helps them then this is all worthwhile for me. So I want to say thank you so much for taking the time and joining me today on and doing this interview. It's been eye-opening for me because I, I learned a lot personally, stuff that I, I honestly thought I knew, but I, I didn't obviously have the in-depth knowledge of. So thank you for that. Is there anything else that you kind of want to leave or any piece of information that you want to share with anybody uh, while I have you on? I, I just want to say that, you know, First of all, you know, if you're in the first responder community and some of these things that we've been talking about is ringing true, like reach out to someone like there's there's always hope and there's always someone that can help you get the help that you need. If you're a case where you're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, difficulty, operational stress injury, forget the label, but it's messed you up and your doctor or your mental health practitioner has said, um, there's no cure for this, there is, there is hope. And one of the primary reasons of these law enforcement suicides you're seeing is because that's what doctors are telling them. This is gonna be your life forever, and you're just gonna have to, to deal with that, and I'm gonna help you cope. And that's just not, uh, that's not a happy thing to hear. So that's not the truth. There is hope. There are lots of really good organizations out there that not just mine, uh, but that we all band together for the common good of helping those who have helped others um, that really need that help. So that's all that I would want to say. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for that. And thank you for being on the show. And 
I know we'll talk again offline here, but I'm excited uh, for the next chance to have you on and to, to share more knowledge with everybody. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that again soon. Awesome. It's been a privilege. Thank you for having me, Adam. If you'd like to get a hold of Dr. Robert Perkins or you want to find out more information about him and what he does, you can check out the breakdown.ca forward slash 015. There you'll find resources to the Ontario Critical Incident Stress Foundation and other organizations that Dr. Perkins is involved with. I'm excited to announce that the next episode will be with friend of the podcast, Mr. Randy King. And coming up close to Christmas, this is Christmas 2019, we're doing a little special episode for everybody and uh, I hope you enjoy it. And it's going to be an interview with Christian Gudegast, who was the writer and director of a little movie called Den of Thieves. So I'm really excited to bring something a little newer to you, the listener, and I hope you enjoy it. Again, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I look forward to seeing you next time on Tactical Breakdown. Stay safe.